Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Hey, I'm going to do a little bit of seamless pluggery here before we jump in. When you're done listening today, if you could give us a five-star rating on your podcast app, I'd appreciate it. It's an unfortunate aspect of the podcasting ecosystem that the podcast apps give more visibility to podcasts that have more ratings and better ratings. Getting more visibility means we get a bigger audience, and getting a bigger audience means we can keep attracting the kinds of great guests that we have on the show. So when you're done listening, please give us a five-star rating on your favorite app. And if you have time for it, a review is even better. Well, that's enough of shameless promotion. On with the show. (laughs) Today's guest is Bruce Damer. He's the chief scientist of the Biota Institute, and he's a research associate in molecular engineering at UC Santa Cruz. And he's an astrobiologist working on the science of life's origins and the future for sustainable paths for humanity. You can find out more about Bruce and his work at Biota, that's B-I-O-T-A dot O-R-G. He's also president of the recently formed Center for Minds at centerforminds.org. And we're going to talk about that a fair bit today. Welcome back, Bruce. I think this is probably your fourth or fifth appearance on the Jim Rudd Show. Indeed it is. Then thank you, Jim. It's becoming an ongoing conversation of sorts. And I've enjoyed every one of them. It's always informative and they're always fun. Bruce is a wonderful guest. Today we're going to at least start the conversation from an essay Bruce wrote called Downloads from the Modern Dawn of Psychedelics. And this thing was printed in something I'd never heard of, but I'm going to be following now, called Lucid News, lucid.news, which calls itself Lucid News provides informed, honest, and transparent journalism that covers the growing integration of psychedelics into society and their broad implications for human wellness. That should be a good source for people to follow that are interested in this sort of stuff. So, what's your thesis about psychedelics and humanity. So why I went back to what I called the dawn of modern psychedelia in the West was that an amazing history of psychedelic use, which has started really in the, in Europe, it started in England in the 19th century. It carried on into America with the study of mescaline in tribal groups, peyote, mescaline practice. And That carried on into the 1940s and 50s. And one of the most amazing discoveries was that psychedelia or the use of psychedelics could have had a different start. It could have been introduced to the world by Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist, who was very much into it. And it could have been introduced by Aldous Huxley beyond his book, Doors of Perception, published in 1954 about his mescaline experience. Because it turns out that he and Humphrey Osmond, and I have in front of me, which the audience cannot see, a wonderful tome uh, called Psychedelic Prophets, The Letters of Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond. And Humphrey Osmond was the man who brought 
Mescaline to Aldous Huxley, who is a great man of letters. He had written fantastic books, which all of your, your listeners will probably know about. Maybe they were forced to read them in high school. So his books in the 1930s and all the way through sort of presaged the modern world. Huxley and Osmond were in a correspondence. Osmond came down from Saskatchewan to Huxley's house to bring him mescaline, and he had his first psychedelic trip described in this book. Shortly after that, Osmond and Huxley were trying to put together something they called the Outsight Project. And the Outsight Project would recruit, or what they called lure, they would lure 50 to 100 really interesting intellectuals, scientists, writers, to take mescaline. So they would provide a set and setting, this is before the term was coined, and people like Carl Jung were approached, Albert Einstein, people of the time, and their experiences would be recorded and then sort of reported openly. And this project never happened. In these letters, they talk about approaching the Ford Foundation and a whole lot of other people to get the money to do this. And it just didn't materialize. And so I realized in looking at this that psychedelics were originally thought of as tools to power the mind, and perhaps by psychology as simulants of psychosis or for the study and the treatment of psychosis, perhaps, but also for tools of the powering of the mind. And Humphrey Osmond coined the term psychedelic in 1956 in one of these letters in this book, which means it sort of derived from the Greek mind manifesting. So, this was going on. And, you know, we hear about Claire Booth Luce, who was a big proponent. She was taking LSD, who was a very famous Republican congresswoman and much more. And we have Cary Grant, quite possibly John F. Kennedy. So there was this whole intelligentsia on, on acid in some sense, or mescaline or other substances in the 50s. And in the early 60s, it was proposed in an article by Gerald Hurd that these things be looked at because that high degrees of concentration are the very mark of genius functioning. And he felt that LSD gave you that. It gave you a sort of concentration without it being overtly limiting. And that today we call this convergent versus divergent thinking. You know, if you're noodling around on a thing, for a long time and you're banging your head against a wall, as I know you probably do, Jim, as we all do, you just can't get a solution. But divergent thinking allows your mind to go out and do free associations. And one of the things we know about at least some psychedelics, particularly LSD and psilocybin, is they appear to promote, upregulate long-range connections in the brain. When you look at a brain that's brain imaging studies, you see a very significant increase in long range. So it, it makes sense that your brain is now integrating further afield than it does when you're in your normal mindset. Precisely. And this was the hypothesis of Willis Harmon, Jim Fadiman, Myron Stoloroff, and a group at San Francisco State College when they invited 23 professionals to come and use mescaline or LSD and work on creative problem solving, like in the lab. And they published a preliminary pilot study in 1966, psychedelics as agents for creative or catalysts for creative problem solving. 
And then the hammer came down. The governors of California and Nevada criminalized LSD. And that was sort of a nationwide role of criminalization across, because there was a panic around LSD, as you know. And so letters went out to these researchers basically saying cease and desist. And a whole branch of science was made illegal of clinical science, of psychiatric research, and creativity. And so as we know, after that, it was a long climb back to any kind of respectability within the scientific community. Studies starting up in the early 90s again, and then we have MAPS, Hefter Research Institute, and they finally, you know, we're probably a year away from at least MDMA coming into clinical use through the good graces of all the research community and of MAPS as the sponsor. So it's a long climb. And so what I decided, it was like I had had my own psychedelic practice. I started it with Terrence McKenna, who provided my first mushroom trip, the good graces of the bard Terrence. And then we compared notes about the thing, and it was quite quite the share. And then a year later, he was gone. He had passed away from a, a very wicked form of brain tumor. And some of the questions that I had raised with him, we had these all-night conversations about novelty and complexity and his ideas from the Big Bang on up and how did complexity work. This is your bailiwick too, Jim. Terence was sort of a a prognosticator and a, in a sense a popularizer of the idea of of concrescence into novelty, you know, Whiteheadian thinking and all this stuff. You know, he peppered all his talks with it. But didn't he also believe that humans became humans from tripping monkeys, right? Or actually it would have been apes. Yeah, in fact, when asked, he said that that may be my only serious proposal was that humans came to consciousness in some ways by eating caprophytic mushrooms on the plains of Africa, the stoned ape theory. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting theory. By the way, Aldous Huxley's great novel, and us old guys have like a 20-minute recall problem, is Brave New World. Of course, of course, yeah. Published in the 30s, and it features Soma, this feel-good pill uh, that people take. They take Soma holidays, and it's, it's a stratified society with genetic engineering and babies in bottles, and it's an amazing read for the 1930s, for goodness sakes. Yeah, that was the one with the alphas, betas, epsilons, you know, this caste system based on intentionally poisoning the embryos to make them less developmentally strong so they could be slaves and all this kind of yeah. creepy ass shit. I have to go back and read that. I haven't read it since high school, probably. And then the last novel that Huxley wrote was called Island, and it was about this basically psychedelically infused community on an island where things are just going really groovy. Now, this is all published and written before the hippies rose because Huxley passed away famously on the day that Kennedy was shot. Huh. And he asked his wife, Laura, as he was on his way out to inject him with 100 mics of LSD you know, intravenously. And he went out that way on that very auspicious day in the sense when the 60s were launched by 
the crazy event of that, that day in November 1963. So if you got exposed to psychedelics for the first time late in McKenna's life, he died around 1999, didn't he? Something like that? 2000, April 3rd, actually. So you were late to come into the psychedelic party. I think I dropped acid for the first time, would have been in 1973, something like that. And only did it six times, but uh, that was enough. You know, I did everything from a light, you know, sub-hallucinogenic trip at about 50 or 75 mics, which was great. I, I skied all day. Best skiing I ever did in my life. <laughs> my best friend at the time was a professional ski acrobat. And normally he would just humor me when we'd go skiing together. You know, he'd have to slow down. Oh, where's slow-ass Jim coming down the hill? Do do. But man, I skied as good as he did that day. And he was amazed. What the hell happened? What'd you get some new skis? He said, nope, I dropped uh, 75 mics acid. <laughs> uh. A famous major league pitcher pitched a no-hitter, supposedly on acid in the 60s. Yeah, as long as you keep the dose down under 100, you can function. Then I, you know, I did like 150, and then I did one ego death trip at about 300 or 400. Of course, this college kid street drug, so you didn't quite mm -hmm. know exactly the dose. Yeah. But I will say something funny. MIT at the time had a, a student health service that would let you take any drug you wanted, put it in an envelope, peel a label off this thing on the wall, put the number on the envelope, push it through a slot in the door, and then you could come back a couple days later and the number would be up on a chart on the wall and it would tell you what the assay was. So we had a fair idea of what the dosages were by taking one of our pills and pushing it through into the uh, health service. They, it was a service they offered, right? Said, all right, that one has 350 mics of acid and a little bit of PCP. That was the one that I did for the really strong trip. <laughs> Are you sure the health services wasn't taking a little lick of that on the way? Well, I would say the pills never came back let's put it that way oh there you go okay yeah the other interesting thing i can say that's sort of generally related is in my uh, tech business dude career in the 80s i was fortunate enough to get to know many of the baby boomer vintage tech gods you know the bill gateses and the larry ellisons and the various other ones and essentially all of them had tripped at one time or another mm -hmm. i expect that was not a coincidence yeah, so this is actually part of the thesis for Minds, the Center for Minds, that under the table, like behind closed doors or however you have it, a lot of our, our tech leadership, our genius inventors, designers, even science people like me, were either experimenting with psychedelics, especially the tryptamine psychedelics, which tend to inspire thoughts. They're not the downers, they're more of the uppers in some sense. And they're not really reporting it. And so in 2019, I decided to come out of the closet. Our origin of life work was in the can, if you will. It was major publications on the cover of a couple of one leading scientific journal, on the cover of Scientific American, the subject of documentaries. And there were teams working on the hot spring hypothesis all over the world, as there are today. And I spoke to my colleague, Dave Deemer at UC Santa Cruz, and I decided to do a speech. And it was an invited speech for Dennis McKenna, the brother of Terence McKenna, who is holding an ethnobotany conference in England. And he asked me to do a keynote. And I said, okay, here's the idea. It's high time for science. Where I would tell not only my story of using ayahuasca, to work on the problem of the origin of life. And I made multiple breakthroughs there, but also other people who had been doing this work, sort of 
behind closed doors or under the table and call for a return to the research. Let's try to validate whether this really works. And then let's, if it does, let's valorize it into society. Let's make it okay, just as it will soon be okay to go for psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, let's make it okay to even consider psychedelic-assisted innovation in our boardrooms, you know, from leadership all the way into the tech labs, because we need more breakthroughs. We can't leave a drop of genius in the jar, right, Jim? Absolutely. And we have an unbelievably big universe to think through and figure out. And, you know, that's a mission for a billion years, probably. We might as well get started on it. Yeah. And I think somebody said that if you didn't tweak the light coming through the microscope, your eye could not see the moons of Saturn through the telescope, rather, if you, or a microscope, too. You have to bend the instrument and change the way even nature comes to you. So perhaps psychedelics are the shaping of the lens of the mind so that we can focus and we can receive new things, new patterns, new associations. So perhaps if we see our minds as malleable lenses. This reminds me of a saying at the Santa Fe Institute that science is a process for converting caffeine into papers, right? And we consumed a gigantic amount of good quality coffee at the Santa Fe Institute. We had these giant coffee urns that were you know, kept rolling all day. And while coffee is an acid, it's on the upper spectrum. And I've seen other arguments that Western civilization itself was actually catalyzed by the introduction of coffee and tea into Western Europe around 1500, something like that. If you accept both of those premises, there's you know, certainly some reason to believe that adding a new part to our psychotechnology in the form of brain-modifying chemicals could have you know, quite substantial impacts on the emergent effect in terms of what the human race is capable of doing. Precisely. And one of the reasons I know you alluded back to, I was I was no spring chicken when I first uh, did psilocybin through the good graces of Terrence. That is absolutely true. I was, I was 37 years old. And the reason being is that I had a trippy brain on the natch, naturally in a sense. I would have been called a spectrumy or even an autistic kid in the 1960s, except they didn't have a classification for autistic kids. My mother just declared me to be in my own world and to be left alone to my own devices. So I did that. And I used to notice when I would close my eyes to take a nap or to go to sleep, I would notice all this color or sort of flashing washes going behind closed eyelids. And psychologists call that hypnagogia. But what I did was I learned to tune a little knob of my awareness so that I kind of shut down my thinking mind because I wanted those things to resolve into like color images. Like we would have a color TV. We didn't even have a color TV at the time. And I was able to do it and I was able to turn that knob and see worlds. And so then I drew thousands of drawings of these landscapes and creatures and spacecraft and whatnot. And then that tunability, that natural ability to download, if you will, became my job, my profession in writing software operating systems and virtual worlds, and then spacecraft simulation design for NASA. It was all required, that internal simulant process that was going on. And I didn't want to mess with it. I didn't want to mess with that, what I now call endotripping or endogenous 
internally juiced tripping, I didn't want to mess with that machinery. So I avoided even aspirin, for goodness sakes. I was a staunch non-druggie until I met Terrence. Interesting. And I think in an earlier podcast, you made the case pretty convincingly that, you know, geometric thinkers like Einstein are also likely to have been endogenous trippers. Yeah, I think definitely. He describes his as his Gedanken experiment, uh, riding alongside a beam of light, for example. Yeah, the, the way he came to special relativity in particular was like, whoa, you know, this was, you had to be able to think almost a literal simulation point of view to get there. And it wasn't that hard once you were able to do that, but nobody else had ever done that before. And once he got there, he wrote down some relatively simple math, which uh, described it, but you would never have found it without that Gedanken experiment. Yeah, so it started out, I mean, some of his thought experiments are pretty crazy, like two trains are coming at each other at night and the, the beams of light are coming. Are they twice the speed of light? You know, are the waves or particles of, of light? And it's a great tradition in physics. And it turns out that in chemistry and biochemistry, thought experiments and sort of trippy visions are a classic from the benzene ring discovery through a dream all the way you know, through supposedly Crick's experimentation with LSD to see the double helix, although I think it's not that conclusive, but that he was actually using LSD in the 50s is conclusive. And then we have Kerry Mullis and his discovery of PCR gene sequencing in the 80s, which he talked about using LSD. And perhaps I'm, I'm on that lineage of becoming the chemicals, for goodness sakes. Uh, talk about a drug tale. Uh, becoming the chemical so that you can actually see what the chemicals do. And in this case, it was protocells full of polymers that I became that night uh, in the Peruvian jungle. Whoa, interesting. And then, of course, there's another very interesting example from ancient history, the Illusion Mysteries, which were held out 11 miles outside Athens for what, a thousand years, something like that? They're not quite sure, but it seemed to have been a combination of a very powerful dramatic presentation with lighting and darkness and shadows and all, and the elixir that they, what was it called? The Kukion, the Kukion. Yeah, it was uh, thought to have been perhaps a rye ergot type thing that might have had lysergic acid in it or something. But the number of people that were participating in that, the Aleskis... Uh, Eleusinian Mysteries. Yeah, the Eleusinian Mysteries, absolutely. I got absolutely fascinated with those about 20 years ago and tracked down all the books I could find, which weren't very many at the time. There's been a bunch more since. You know, Aeschylus, Plato, probably Augustus, Plutarch, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, and my, one of my favorites. Julian the Apostate are all thought to have been uh, initiates into the Illusion Mysteries. And no one knows because there was a death penalty for disclosing. And nobody ever did disclose. At least the disclosures never made it into that part of the record from antiquity that was uh, recorded. But if you think about it, these are the high watermarks of, of names. But just think of the influence that the Illusion Mysteries must have had on that Greco-Roman culture. And in fact, right after the recording of podcast with you, I'm speaking with Brian Mirarescu, who wrote a book called The Immortality Key. It just came out about a year and a half ago. It's a best-selling book about Eleusis and the new science of archaeochemistry, where at a site, at an Eleusinian-style site in Spain, they had goblets, stone goblets, that weren't cleaned and fixed up for museum preparation. So 
they had actually intact chemicals and they could scrape it off and do archaeochemistry and they found something derivative of ergot, which is the that little purple fungus on barley that uh, is, is the source, of course, for LSD, lysergic acid. He, uh, of course, did the research you did. He read the books by Hoffman, Ruck, and Wasson from the late 70s, early 80s. In fact, I spoke with Carl Ruck last year when he was out here. He's the sole survivor of that trio that created that hypothesis. And so Brian's book is really worth getting. If I like the book, I'll invite him on the show. He he's definitely would be an excellent guest, and I'll be speaking with him shortly. Tell him I said, if he wants to be on the show, he's hereby invited. How bad could a book about Eleusius be, right? <laughs> what Brian argues is that not only were all of the like, thousand people at a time in the, the Telesterion Temple took this potion after months of preparation, and perhaps the entire of antiquity, the civilizational invention of antiquity from the polity, democracy, aqueducts, sporting events, theater, mathematics, the academy, all came from, in a sense, what, what was sort of described as an initiation of humanity, turning it from a hunter-gatherer civilization of fishermen and living just after the Ice Ages in, in Europe into the city-building, thinking, a little bit literate civilization that then Rome copied. And they were sort of, we're still living in the Roman grid. We are in that designs that came out of the Greek experiment in how to build a world. Now, I would love to know, did he address, and I'll read the book and we'll see, but the greatest, in the West at least, the greatest collapse of civilization was not the collapse of Rome. It was the late Bronze Age collapse in the whole Eastern Mediterranean, where, you know, Mycenae and uh, Crete, Kenosis, all that, you know, the equivalent societies in uh, Egypt, etc. around 1400 BC, a little bit after the times of the Trojan War, maybe it was 1200 BC, they all simultaneously collapsed. And Greece, for instance, actually lost literacy. You know, that's an amazing thing to consider. These were quite literate societies, but for several hundred years, Greece lost language. And when it reinvented it three or 400 years later, it was a different written language, unrelated entirely mm. to the mm -hmm. previous one. And, you know, perhaps it was Lucius and similar things like the Delphi oracles are also thought to be driven by hexane gas hallucinations, kind of like doing ether or something, that maybe these were the reboot from the decline rather than from the end of the Ice Age, but rather how Greece came back from the late Bronze Age collapse. I would be very interested in seeing if he thought that through and addressed that in his book. Yeah, that will be a good question for Brian. So we put all this together. It may be that hallucinogens or, or psychoactive compounds of all sorts, you know, not just the classic ones we're talking about here, powered civilization. It, it powered the rise of spirituality, of science, of philosophy, of even how we treat each other, perhaps. And so they've been interwoven in human history deeply. And in fact, with the Enlightenment and the rise of industrialism, perhaps it was a period that would end up being dominated by alcohol. You know, we see those terrible paintings of the late 18th and into the 19th centuries of the drunkenness of, from distilled alcohol, which hits society in Europe like a, an atom bomb. And the U.S. too. People don't realize this, but on the frontier in particular, where it was very expensive to ship your corn back 
east and you know there were no decent roads no canals or anything the main product from the frontier say in the early uh, 19th century was corn liquor and the locals consumed it in bodacious quality it's thought that there was always non-drinkers but the drinkers were more numerous than the non-drinkers on the frontier so thought the average male person on the frontier say around 1810 1820 was consuming a quart of corn liquor a day you know that's kind of like a serious ne'er-do-well alcoholic level of boozing to drink a quart of hard liquor a day that was thought to be the approximately average adult consumption uh, no wonder it was famed for its outlaws and its decadence and its filth and everything else the technology of distillation which meant you could get alcohol at levels that humans had never experienced. And then it became toxic. The poison path, sometimes this is called by thinkers in this area, that poisons at a lower dose are, they're homeopathic, they're healing, or they're vision-inspiring. But at higher doses, they're anything but. They could be completely toxic and alcohol being a, a good example so yeah two other good examples of that one of course that they're well known coca you know i mean there are people who have chewed coca for thousands of years and it uh, you know it's an interesting stimulant etc but it doesn't produce the derangement that extracted and refined cocaine does let alone crack cocaine so the other one you know i've smoked opium a few times it was actually pretty nice and that you know it didn't turn me into a degenerate or an addict or anything else this was the actual native opium goo that was extracted from some poppies and uh, but then you refine it you know down to morphine or even more heroin where you build chemical analogs like uh, oxycotton then you know it becomes this extraordinarily powerful drug that you know 40 percent of people fall into the web very quickly i will say that you know smoking opium is probably not a good thing to do every day but it's much easier to escape than the much more concentrated forms yeah so in we come, you know, we have a chemical cocktail civilization, you know, with, of course, antidepressants and, you know, thousands of prescribable drugs that alter our consciousness. And now we have the return of the original ones and an admixture of new ones because MDMA is laboratory produced, but there are analogs from saffron. There's some natural sources there. So that probably, and I, I think I saw an article recently that alpha fold which does the protein folding, they think it will be able to predict thousands of new psychedelics, thousands. So we're going to enter a period, I think, by the 2040s when we have more exquisite understanding of our neurochemistry, our emotional, inspirational neurofabric, if you will. We can juice it up or we can not only heal some of our internal traumas, but we can totally open up new worlds either individually or in group. And we can kind of evolve humans this way. There's a, because it's a two-edged sword, as you pointed out with oxycotone. This is where minds comes in. This is what uh, we've established the organization to like sit in the liminal zone, right in the center. We're not really talking to your traditional merry prankster, psychotelicists, the artists and the counterculture kind of rebels. Those are well-known. But the quieter people who sit and build the server networks or the large language models, the people who structure supply chains and the people who run companies and who you know, try to work on the problem of scientific solutions for cancer, all of those kinds of people, they're very hardworking, 
mostly quiet, mostly internal people who have vast capacities in their intellect, in a sense, uh, and they know it, and perhaps they've already tapped into it. But are there ways to provide them both a healing and a revealing? Because all of us need a little bit of healing. We've always got the blocks. And early on in my whole quest after meeting Terrence, my psychedelic quest, I realized I had a hard block in my system, a hard little painful knot in my stomach that I had to work on dissolving. And once I had dissolved that, then I was a free flow at that point. I resolved that, my own healing, and therefore my powers of revealing grew. And I think that that's probably a, a good protocol for, for anyone. People like me who are on the spectrum, until my 30s, I found it difficult to make eye contact. And I'm sure you've come across this, Jim. And if you can't make eye contact, you're really kind of cut off from a whole level of emotional response and the feeling of belonging. Yeah, give a person, you know, a potential romantic partner and gaze into their eyes for five minutes. And it'll either happen or it won't at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was really shy. I was uh, kind of withdrawn. People found me difficult to deal with at my first jobs. I was super internalized. And I had to work my way out of that so I could have partnerships and I could find intimacy. But it was a long climb. And psychedelics came in about halfway through that process, about in my 30s and helped me make those last few steps. And at the same time, I became a better scientist and a better designer. So this is why in 2018, I came out of the psychedelic scientist closet, because I thought this could help others like me in a careful way to undergo this transformation. They may find that their productivity really is improved. That's what the Minds Group is about. And on the Minds page, there's useful information, and one of them is a graph that shows the decline of breakthrough research over the last many years. Now, that's always a difficult thing to measure, but tell us about your methodology there. What did you take away from that graph that shows across multiple domains, including life science, physical science, social sciences, and technology, a secular reduction year by year, pretty much, in the high-impact publications? Yes, this was published uh, through Harvard, and it was it's a real stunner because since 1980, the number of disruptive patents and papers, meaning that they create disruption in the field of instrumentation or new thinking devices, approaches for medical science has dropped precipitously. We sit here think, well, we have our smartphones and we have this and that, but the rates of actual innovation have plummeted. It by the measure of, of disruptive patents and papers, even though there are hundreds of times more papers published daily than there were in 1980. And this is laid at the feet of many causes, which one of them could be we over-specialize people. One of them could be laid at the cause of the sort of commercialization of the university and the lack of freedom to broadly search for things. But for my money, it's definitely... A little bit of both of that, but primarily it's because people of, of a nature of a solutioning type personality find very few places they can call home. So they go to college, they have a good time, they get into graduate school. Then by the time they get to their PhD, they're ground to a pulp by doing something very narrowly specialized, crossing a T or dotting an I on 
some previous result to get their PhD successfully. The problem is that if they have broad thinkers, if they have a magnificent mind able to relate many, many things together, like geochemistry with planetary formation with such and such to explain the dynamics of a world where life can start, they can't find a job that way. They can't get funding to work on that. They can't get their PhD on grand thinking, integrative, holistic thinking. And so they go off and they're not sort of not satisfied by being a specialist, a narrow specialist. They go off and they work in tech, which it kind of has its own way to grind you down. You know, if you're sitting there running the server farm, it's not going to be very gratifying. So the creativity component of working in a tech job is not very high either. And yet companies are starved for problem-solving capability, innovation, but we're cutting it off at the pass, just as our young people come out of their teen years into their 20 years. And so one of the things that Minds wants to do is establish a third route for them, which is through a mentorship program where they can get guidance and guardrails and peer review and due diligencing and sort of training on their system of creative visioning. And they can get some support because I found that support kind of at random from various my advisor, my first boss a little bit, and and then finding Dave Deemer at UCSC, finding colleagues at NASA, I was able to get that mentorship, but piecemeal. And through great fortune and luck sometimes finding those those people. And I realized there are people like me out there that will never find that. They'll never find that exact path. And their capacities will never realize. They'll never be able to self-realize some of their gifts for the rest of us. Yeah, it sounds like a very amazing and potentially very valuable trajectory for a lot of people. What is the current state of play? I know some states are just starting to legalize psilocybin, for instance, or at least decriminalizing it. Is there any place where your organization could actually be pointing people to today? Well, what we're doing is we're hoping to start our first studies this year. We're, we're talking with several major university groups and several donors, and we'll start in laboratory. We're going to start with surveys. And in fact, the way you begin research in the psychedelic field, and in fact, in many fields, is you ask the public to tell their stories, to share their stories. So at centerofminds.org, you can go in and tell us your story anonymously if you want. Are you using these practices somehow? And it doesn't have to just be psychedelics. One of the things we decided when we formed the organization is that mindfulness practice is as important as tripping every weekend. Breathwork, yoga, a walk in the woods, for me, have helped me as much, if not more, than the very rare use of a psychedelic to help me over that edge. So mindfulness practice really matters. And in fact, it's an endogenous way to make changes. You know, your vagus nerve system and there's a lot of science. You talk, listen to Andrew Huberman and Sonnenberg's reports from Stanford on what just breathwork alone does to your system in seconds doing breathwork. So there are many, many, many practices, and it's a blend of all those practices that might lead to breakthroughs. So we're asking the listenership, if you've had a beautiful breakthrough and you've tied it to some specific thing you've done, it doesn't have to be psychedelics, it could be just good old caffeine, let us know about it because we, we are building a map of how creativity is sparked out there. 
And once we have that map, we're going to be able to work with our university partners to do studies in the field, to do interviews and surveys called introspective surveys, and then to work toward studies in, in the laboratory, just as was done in the mid-60s by Willis Harmon and, and colleagues, bringing that kind of work back. And that work actually is back and it's being studied at three or four universities now that's being taken up. University of Greenwich, or two studies published in the last three years of using fMRI scanners while people are on the influence of psilocybin to watch brain activity. So that's those sorts of studies are actually back, constituting a kind of opening of a new branch of psychedelic research. Interesting. Now, I actually took your survey, and I uh, did uh, tell a story. And this is advice I give to business people, hard-charging entrepreneurs like I used to be, right? I had a very intense career from, say, 25 or so to 48 when I basically cashed out my chips and went home. And what I recommend for people in that power band, though I stopped probably the last five years, is it wasn't psychedelics, et cetera, because you know, the machinery had to run better than what psychedelics, I don't know, maybe I just was a wimp. But I found for me that worked great was about once every six to eight weeks doing as strong a dose as you could force down of sativa style THC. And, uh, you know, get it to the just close to hallucinating stage, right? Where your brain is just out of control and exploring. Why I described it as so useful was it got you out of the box. When you're in this super intense mode of doing stuff, you see to the left and to the right a bit. And you're grinding, you're hill climbing, you know, you're optimizing. And that's all good. And when you're building stuff, you need to do that. But it helps a lot to take the box and shake it, then open the top and throw the pieces up in the air for a couple of hours and uh, then get back to work. But then now you're saying, whoa, wait a minute. Maybe it's not all hill climbing. Maybe there's a valley that needs to be crossed, right? And for me, I found a, you know, about uh, 25 milligrams of sativa THC would do the job about once every six to eight weeks. And I'm, I'm totally deaf on everyday THC smoking. I know there's some people it's probably good for them or their neurotype, et cetera. But most people, I think daily THC is an abomination. It's terrible. But occasional heavy-duty acute THC is at least for me, and I've given this advice to other people, and they've, they've told me it was very transformational for them to do it on something like a six to eight week intermittency. And Jim, you know, in my heavy periods of design, whether it's spacecraft design or origin of life, I've also done something about every quarter, sometimes only twice a year. But what I've done is what I call in my own protocol, set setting and setup. So the setup is loading the problem into my mind, loading the questions, reading the articles, working through drawings of designs and coming up to the stop point where I just can't get past that. And then the, the setting, of course, is the place you do it. You know, it shouldn't be in the middle of a shopping mall, for example, or even a festival. It's kind of the wrong place, too distracting. And then the set is your mindset going in. And what I find is that if I have the intention of working on the problem, I take whatever I take, and I may not remember even. You get into what's called the acute phase. And in the acute phase, all kinds of amazing things are happening. It might be to do with yourself or opening to worlds. And it may be so 
extraordinary that you've completely forgotten that you had a, made a request to work on the problem. And then on the downslope, the far downslope, as you're coming, coming down and all this has happened in your system, the little, little thing might show up, a little voice or a picture might show up. And you realize it's here. My intention carried through this whole dishwasher of acuteness. And there's something. I'm seeing something. Like the design for a new medical thing, like a new molecular recombinator, which is what happened on the last journey that I did. And it just all flowed out. It was like sandwiches of lipids with reagents going in the sideways and coming out through nanopores. And it was a fantastic vision. And I was like completely working machine that, that sort of ran in front of me, almost like in the third eye. And I was able to like sketch that out, describe that and share it with a colleague to, to stress test the idea, this, will this work? So that's a modality of how to, how to get this thing to work. But it's only one of many protocols. And thank you for filling in our survey. It's a datum of what is going on out there. Indeed. And for people who want to fill out the survey, why don't you give us the link that people can go to? Oh, it's right on the homepage at centerforminds.org. Just you can see, you can either get our newsletter, fill out the short survey, and it's a really brief survey. It's not one of those big science. Yeah, I was going to say, it took three minutes or something, one of these annoying things that gives you 45 questions about, you know, how are you toilet trained in Germany in 1944 or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Where are the others? I think, was it Tim Leary talked about the others or was it Terrence McKenna? Like if you're one of the others, the people who sort of been in that secret room, been in that strange place and find their compadres who've also been in those strange places. And that most of us now, or many of us have been in, in these strange worlds. And admitting, you know, it's, it, frankly, it's, I believe, how gay liberation occurred when a few brave gay people came out of the closet. And then you said, wait a minute, they're perfectly normal, good people. What the hell, right? And then other people said, that was stupid had to be discriminating against gay people. Then more people came out of the closet. And in a remarkably short period of time, kind of a feedback loop of few pioneers and then other people reacting positively to that more and more and more. And then in a, in a short period of time, people said, I wonder what the hell was all that homophobia about? What a stupid ass thing, right? One could see the same happening with psychedelics as more and more people are willing to raise their hands and, oh, yeah, I tripped. What the hell, right? And, or I find uh, every six-week uh, heavy-duty dose of uh, cannabis sativa to be a useful thing, right? More and more people are willing to do it, and uh, maybe we'll see a growing wave of people who do it. On the other hand, we also have to be honest that these drugs can be bad attractors for some people. LSD, I know the, the street wisdom in the 70s, and I believe it's been more or less confirmed, is that might have a 1% chance of inducing psychosis. And whether that's it, psychosis you otherwise would have had or not, I don't think is clear yet, but uh, there are some risks. And, you know, 10% of people are susceptible to becoming addicted to even uh, marijuana, uh, et cetera. So one needs to be doing this with some attention, I guess I should say, discernment into what is right for themselves. Yeah, and, and this is why it's so wonderful what MAPS has done with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy that's coming out. They're training thousands of people right now, thousands of practitioners that will help with creating the set and setting and running these sessions. And one of the things that can happen as a result of that, because we'll have legal 
availability of these practices and therapies across the nation, probably in 2025, is that you can also try a creativity component to it. So for instance, perhaps not the same day, but in subsequent days, there could be a, a measure of people's creative flow, flow states, if you will. A lot of the community talks about being in flow. Are people more in flow? And if they're working on technical jobs or administrative leadership jobs, did it make their job better? And I'm sure there will be numerous studies of the population because what if we can both heal PTSD in our population and we can also create better humans who are really actually better at their jobs too. They're better human beings to each other, to themselves, their families, but then they're actually capable in a beautiful sort of way in their their jobs or in their their technical work or their solutioning. Why not? You know, and so we can we can start tracking that. We can start tracking that actually with you with your THC. <laughs> I don't do it anymore, so it's long as years ago, but it worked at the time. Just another one I'm just curious about. MDMA, I know, for PTSD. The other one that's uh, starting to leak out into moderately widespread use is ketamine usage on depression and anxiety. As someone who's quite the opposite of either depression or anxiety, you know, I had no interest in such things, and so I haven't really looked into it. But you know anything about ketamine? I don't even know what the hell. Ketamine's like an animal tranquilizer or something. Yeah. I mean, ketamine was never Schedule One. It was never considered illegal because it was used as an anesthetic, we used it here when we had pigs and we used ketamine to knock out the pigs so we could cut their toenails, for example, here on the farm. I know of people who've used ketamine for all kinds of things uh, for treatment of depression, of basically treatment resistant depression. It's really been a boon. There are clinics all over the, the country. There are online clinics as well for ketamine. Even people who suffer from rheumatoid arthritis experiencing many, many days or even a couple of weeks of, of no pain. So ketamine is a, is a huge area. And ketamine is definitely a dissociative. It's not considered a classic psychedelic, but it puts you into an altered state. But it seems to do things to the nervous system that are very beneficial. There is a danger point that's called the K-hole. If you take too much ketamine or together with something else, you can actually stop breathing. That's a dangerous thing. So there's an LD50, which is the lethal dose killing 50% of the mice in the trial. LSD, on the other hand, has no LD50. Uh, so it's safer. It's much safer than alcohol, for example. But ketamine definitely has, MDMA is a little, has an LD50. All of this really should be done with, you know, careful supervision or people in the know. And for minds, uh, what we're going to be reaching out to are those practitioners who have very, very good professional practice. And you mentioned some states have decriminalized, Oregon being one of them. People are setting up clinics in Oregon for psilocybin, for example. And it could well be that there could be corporate retreats there uh, for problem solving or better teaming in Oregon where they can do it. Federally, it's still a Schedule One substance, but statewide it has protections. So we'll, we'll see that emerge and we want to be there to study it. We want to be there to capture the data and see if we can get publications and documentaries made and really see what's going on. Sounds great. Well, Bruce Damer, it's been a wonderful conversation. Glad to have you back on The Jim Rudd Show. Always a pleasure, Jim. 
Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.